Gracious Lord, thank you for your word, for your house that we are able to gather in for worship. Lord, thank you for the good work that you've been doing in our midst and for gathering us together this morning to uh, study your word, to know you better. Make yourself known to us this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, this past week, we wrapped up the book of Genesis in our Dwell Richly readings and started in Exodus. And I'm going to just touch a little bit on the end of, of Genesis. If there's anything in particular you want to go back to, I'm open to that. But I really want to dig into Exodus because Exodus is, I mean, this is, Genesis is awesome. You get a lot of the, the cool, interesting, weird stories. But Exodus, in many respects, is the heart of the Old Testament. And I'll go so far as to say that if you want to fully grasp and understand the gospel, what Jesus does, you can't fully understand it without some uh, uh, understanding of and appreciation for the Exodus and what God does in that, because it is like the paradigm, it's the template for God's redemptive work, which continues throughout the Old Testament and then carries through into the New. And that's where I wanted to start this morning, just in introducing it. You know, I ask, rhetorical question, I suppose, what ancient Israelites thought of when they thought of salvation, what came to mind? Well, the answer is unequivocally, they thought of the Exodus. They thought of God leading his people out of slavery, out of captivity, into the promised land and into the, the freedom, the opportunity to worship and serve him. And this is true already in the Old Testament itself, that there was this, this sense that the Exodus formed a pattern, a template for God's redemptive work. And to give just one example, um, hundreds of years later, the Israelites would find themselves in a different kind of captivity where they were exiled where um, you know, the Babylonians had come in before them, the Assyrians, and led them out of their homeland, dragged them, taken them forcibly hundreds of miles away. And the prayer and the anticipation became, you know, how is God going to bring us back, bring us back to our home? And that work of bringing them out of exile was understood or anticipated, prayed for, hoped for, as a sort of new exodus. So to give just one example from Isaiah 43, this is, you know, God speaking through the prophet during this, this season of exile. God says, interestingly, remember not the former things, thinking of that first exodus, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Just as previously God had made a, a way through the wilderness, coming from the west in Egypt over to the east in the promised land, now it's reversed further east over Babylon. It's going to bring them back into their homeland. The Exodus formed that kind of template. But also in the New Testament, in the gospel of our Lord Jesus, in so many ways, Exodus forms the backdrop for what happens. To give you just a few examples, when Jesus is a baby and uh, God gives a vision to Joseph and tells Joseph, you need to get out of Dodge because Herod's going to be coming for your kid. And so it says, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. In Jesus, that ancient story of Israel is getting retold in a new way, just as he had led his people, his firstborn son, one of the things we, we saw in the chapters from this week from Exodus, God regarded Israel as his firstborn son. Now his true son, he is leading out of Egypt once again. Another example. Oh, I love this one. Luke 9. This is Luke's account of the transfiguration. It says, Behold, two men were talking with him, that is Jesus, Moses and Elijah, 
who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. That's the way most translations have it. But the Greek word there is literally exodus. They spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Once more, from Galatians chapter 1, looking retrospectively on Jesus' uh, redemptive work, Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. There Paul is alluding to, he's invoking language from, uh, Galatia, or from Exodus chapter 3, the way that God speaks to Moses, we'll look more at that in a moment, uh, that deliverance, the same word that's used there. Uh, picking up on this notion that the way that Jesus delivers us from this present evil age of sin and death, so also in the past God had delivered his people. And on and on it goes. Today, of course, Jesus is you know, uh, in the wilderness being tempted. Uh, for how long? 40 days. And how long were the Israelites being tempted in the wilderness? 40 years. 40 years. 40 years. They were being tempted. Well, I mean, they were tempted and tried. They were. They were tried. Yeah, and they were tested. I mean, in many respects. And Mark has this kind of compressed account. But in Matthew and Luke, um, Jesus is quoting scripture at the evil one, at Satan. And what he quotes from is from Deuteronomy. He quotes from three places in Deuteronomy, which are all referencing back to those wilderness wanderings. Man does not live by bread alone. God provided the, the manna in the wilderness. No, 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 it goes. All that to say... Exodus is foundational for understanding the whole Bible and for the richness of the gospel. And just to give you some, some data for you people who like numbers too, uh, I, I looked this up that there are 44 direct quotations from Exodus in the New Testament. And then another 144 at least, allusions and echoes, like that one from Galatians where Paul doesn't say he's quoting from Exodus, but he's alluding to it. Uh, so that just gives you a little taste, an inkling of how much Exodus is influencing the New Testament. It's huge. It's huge. So I guess I'm just belaboring the point that it's really cool to be studying Exodus. I'm glad to be reading it with you during the season of Lent. But before we dig into it more, let's do a little previously on the days of the Israelites' lives. Because it is like a soap opera as we have been reading the story of the sons of Israel and all they have been going through. So notice how the book of Exodus starts. Um, it's very much is picking up where Genesis left off. So while they're, they're two distinct books and stories, they're connected in, in so many ways. And the simplest, most straightforward way is this, although I haven't seen a translation that, that um, affirms this. But literally, the first line of Exodus says, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. In other words, it starts with, it starts with a conjunction. It starts with and, as though it's like, it's like mid-sentence, right? Picking up where we left off in Genesis. Um, and that same line, and these are the names, um, and actually in Hebrew, that's just the title of the book. Of, we call it Exodus. The Israelites called it, these are the names. Um, and so these are the names that's a um, quoting also from Genesis 46 now these are the names of the descendants of Israel picking up the story that had been left off Israel had come into Egypt and it ended with at the end of Genesis you can just look there real quick the very end you know, Joseph had had this um, decline and fall and then rise to power brings his people into the land and then Genesis ends with his death. 
So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and he saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. Then, verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. So we leave off then with the death of Joseph, this promise, prophecy that the people are going to leave Egypt, go back, and then the curtain falls, and something like three centuries or more have passed from Joseph's death. And I just want to read the first few uh, verses here of Exodus chapter 1, because it, it really sets the stage then for what's to come. So we said these are the names. Then verse 6, Joseph died and his brothers and all that generation. But, verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now pause there. Why is that significant already? Here, that it, it tells us, oh, the people were great. So we're just getting like a, a demographic report real quick. Like, let's just hear the census. Why is it significant that it tells us that the people have multiplied so greatly and are filling the land? It's fulfilling this promise. Already, in, in a, a provisional way, it's fulfilling the promise that God had made to Abraham. He reiterated it again to Abraham's father. We heard it today, in fact, in the Genesis 22 reading. God reiterated it. That this was essential to his promise that through Abraham, that he was going to expand and multiply these generations. It's already happening. Okay? What well, had been 70 people that went down to Egypt... Now it's, it's filling the land to the point that it's, um, from numbers that we have later on, it's clear that it's several million people. Several million people. All right. But then, everybody go, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Thank you. Because, verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us, Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. Too late. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. All right, so here it's setting up this conflict, okay? The king, Pharaoh, is seeing there's too many of these Jews around here. We need to we, we bring them under our thumb. And thus, he's going to institute this regime of forced labor, putting them under slavery in order to um, cause us in this time of, of profound suffering and distress and oppression and so forth. This is what's kind of setting the stage for what's to come. Real briefly then, the structure, the outline of the book. There's many ways that you could outline this, but one that I've come across that I, I like this is outlining it and thinking of the story in terms of locations. So you got kind of three places there. We're in Egypt for the first 13, 12 and a half chapters. And then you're in the wilderness for about five chapters, that wandering. And then they're at Sinai for the latter half of the book. And they're going to be at Sinai for a long time. So when we get to Sinai, we'll get comfortable. We'll hang out there because God's got a lot to teach his people once they get to Sinai. Those are the three places that we'll see. But another way to think about it is if you want to look at the diagram here, you've got the, the story of Exodus where it's leading from two kinds of service. From service to Pharaoh, ultimately it's going to land a service to Yahweh, to the Lord, the, the God of Israel. 
And we just see these kind of stair steps of what happens along the way of God hearing the groaning of his people, calling Moses, promising to deliver them, fighting on their behalf, the, the signs and wonders, the plagues, delivering them, providing for them finally. I mean, the Red Sea deliverance is kind of the climax of that, brings them through. Then providing for them in the wilderness and finally wedding himself to them through the covenant um, and, and the uh, creation of the tabernacle. Okay, that's just a little bit of introductory stuff to kind of whet your appetite. Let me pause there because I've been talking for 12 minutes straight so far. For questions or reflections, just on kind of big picture stuff with Exodus before we get into the nitty gritty of these first few chapters. Any questions about, yeah, Megan. Um, I'm actually excited we're here because I wanted to ask you this uh-huh. I, because I teach this in ancient um, hmm. Egypt. Uh-huh. So the part about the new king not knowing Joseph, when I was studying, I have a book that kind of has biblical scholars, historians all mixed together. It talks about the, the Hyksos and that they would have been invaders of Egypt, so they themselves were foreigners, so they would have accepted Joseph as a foreigner. And by the time that Joseph dies off and there's many Israelites, Egypt is trying to restore yep. their bloodline, yep. so they're not as accommodating to foreigners. And I just wanted to see what you thought on that. Yeah, what you knew on it. No, I mean, I think that I think that's absolutely right. And so there is this this regime where it's very much the sense of okay, we need to um, get back to our our uh, roots uh, for as far as the Egyptians go. We want to root out this Israelite. Influence. I mean, this is a story that's going to be told again and again and again with the Jews, um, where uh, as soon as they are starting to ascend and rise to power, other regimes say, we don't want that, we don't want them intermingling and so forth. So, no, I think that's spot on. Well, yeah. Well, then, I go, just one more thing. Because the book I read from, and I, this is a hard part, is a lot of scholars can't come, I guess, to a solid decision on who was ruling at right. that time, who was Pharaoh, because it goes between Queen Hatshepsut, Ramses II, like I've heard other right. things, because she's trying to restore the bloodline, but also Ramses is thrown in there, so that's, but that's further along. Right. So I didn't know if you had any... No, I don't. I mean, okay. yeah, that, like you say, it's a, it's a controverted question of who is it. It'd be a lot easier for us to um, date some of the things along the way if we, if we had that. Um, but no, to, um, to my knowledge, it hasn't been conclusively demonstrated which king it is. But there's a theological significance to that too, as we'll, we'll get to the fact that that king, that pharaoh, is unnamed, uh, okay. and others are. Yeah, Ian. Um, so in verse ten, uh, it says, "Thus uh, they multiply." And if war breaks out, let they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. If uh, they don't like having them there, why don't they just? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. Yeah. Well, if you don't, if you don't want them, just let them go, right? Or they just labor. They go well, right to yeah. Is that what they're going right to? It's like let's deal. Is dealing shrewdly with them mean let's enslave them? Yeah. And not let them get off free, right? Get away. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that at, at this point, if it had been the uh, opportunity for them just to leave, perhaps they did. They would have. Um, but as it is, they're like, wait a second, we've got an incredible potential cheap labor force here. And then, having realized and recognized that, they're like, oh, well, maybe we don't want to let these guys go quite so easily. But I know it is, there's a lot of ironies like that as we get into the book of Exodus, where it, just these head scratching decisions from the Israel, so Egyptians. Are they. Even from the time of Joseph, when they get there, are they always considered second-class citizens in Egypt? 
So does that happen at this moment? Yeah, right. When they become a second-class citizen and push down? Sure. No, that's a good question, and I would answer more just um, conjecturally in, in that I think almost certainly they were regarded as kind of second-class citizens. I don't so, know how that could be not be the case for them so, to be strange. So they've yeah. always been second-class citizens, and now it's just going to get harder for them. Yes, yep, okay. exactly. Now there's going to be official public policy that's going to um, subdue them. Right, because didn't it say when they first arrived that uh, shepherds were an abomination? Yes, that's right. Egyptians? <laughs> yep, we're, we're all shepherds because shepherds were an abomination to them. So there's already that sense like, we're, yeah, we're, we're looking, yeah, we're, we're, they're definitely being looked down upon. And did they eat separately too? I think it mentions yes. that with Joseph, mm -hmm. like that's right. the Israel, the Egyptians, and the they would, yeah. was, there wasn't that intermingling. Two cultures, one land. Yeah, I mean it's there. There was butting of heads from the beginning, and now it's about to ramp up and get real. So, all right, um, let's let's walk through these first few chapters. In some ways some of the most familiar chapters from the Old Testament because this is the source of a lot of uh, great Sunday school stories, right? And perhaps reading along, if you've been reading with us this week, you're like, oh, that's where that comes from. You know, like Burning Bush, for instance. But it starts out, as we say, with this conflict get, uh, comes out as the new king arises who doesn't know Joseph and decides, all right, enough of this. We're going to set taskmasters. We're going to afflict them with heavy burdens. And, and so they do. They start um, bringing, making the Israelites into slaves. And not only that, uh, but the Pharaoh comes up with a great idea of, hey, you know what would, and I mean, this is another one of these ironies. Here's a great idea. Let's kill all the male babies, which is like, how short-sighted is that? Now you're, you're taking out your, your labor force, right? Because uh, we don't want more of the males. Okay, add away. Um, and yet, God graciously preserves them through the wisdom of midwives. And I know, shout out to midwives. They help people out. That's a slow burn one. No, it's, I think Ian and I saw that on a bumper sticker once. Midwives, they help people out. And thought, I'd want to be a midwife just for that model. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be here all week. Okay, so, but I mean, truly, it's such a cool story. And to this point that we don't know who the Pharaoh is, but who do we know? We know the names of those midwives, doggone it. We've got, uh, now what are they? I should know. Pua and Shifra, okay? Incredibly, those names haven't, aren't high on like the biblical names when people are naming their kids. We need, we need to get some more Shifras and Puas out there. there you go. But uh, it's so cool. And it just kind of cracks me up. The, uh, the explanation that they give, the midwives said to Pharaoh, uh, the women, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian They're women. Hardy. They're vigorous. They give birth before the midwife comes to them. And Pharaoh's just, he's like, okay. Uh, and I was listening to somebody. What's that? He doesn't seem like a real bright guy, but I was listening to something they were talking about this, and they pointed out guys don't want to talk about labor generally, you know. And if you know a, a wife or a woman says, "Hey, this is kind of how it happens," guys just tend to be like, "Okay, cool, that's fine. We don't need to go any, you know, say no more." Um, so maybe there's some of that too. But yeah, he clearly seems to be not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Yes, Pharaoh, when we got there, they were already two years old. Exactly. <laughs> right. Sorry, don't know what to tell you. Drat. Foiled. Um, 
But then it gets even more sinister. And he just says, all right, every son that's born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That goes right into, then, the story of Moses. And you pick up with, okay, so you've got a, a man from the house of Levi, and he takes a, a Levi woman, they conceive and bear a son, and she can tell that he's a fine child, and she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket, ah, oh, there he is, took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Two things to, to point out about this from the Hebrew, which are really neat. I don't totally know what to make of it, so I'd be interested to get your take on this. One is, um, when it says that she saw that he was a fine child, the Hebrew word there is tov, which literally just means good. And it's the word that's used in Genesis when it's talking, when God sees creation, he says, it was tov, it was tov, it was good, it was good, and then it was very good. Uh, that strikes me that he, he is regarded as tov. I think there's something there. And then secondly, and along these lines, the, um, what it says, the, the basket that he um, is put into, it's the same word that's used, and it's only used in these two places, to describe the Ark of Noah. And so it's like Moses, the good Noah is placed, the good Moses is placed in his little ark and sent down the river. Uh, I don't know what all of that's bringing to mind, but to me, I think it's at least pointing toward, and certainly for the first hearers of this, that there's like a new, there's a new creation that's afoot, right? A new thing is happening that in the beginning, as God said, it was good. And as he created this ark, he's doing something once again through this child, Moses. It's pretty cool. So you have his birth and his, uh, the, the fact that he, I mean, God provides, not just provides, but in such a, a poetic, poetically merciful kind of way, right? Because they put him in the basket, send him down, and who should find him but the daughter of Pharaoh, and then, you know, Miriam, Moses' sister, has been spying it out to see what's happening. And she just shows up real helpfully. And she's like, hey, cute baby you got there. Do you need a nurse? I can go get a, you know, I happen to know a lady. And she says, yeah, by all means. And so Moses' mom gets to reunite with her son. And now she's getting paid to breastfeed. Like, how great is that? God bless her. Um, such is the providence and the, the mercy of God. But then we get this story of Moses murdering uh, when he, he sees um, the, uh, an Israelite and an Egyptian fighting, kills the guy, realizes that it's been found out, runs away. And then time passes. Okay, so all, all of this has, uh, I mean, it's years are going by. And meanwhile, the Israelites are enslaved and they're crying out to God. At the end of chapter 2, God hears their groaning. Chapter 3, then we get the call of Moses out of the burning bush, the revelation of God's divine name. We can talk more about that. And then Moses' protests of all the reasons why he's not a good candidate for the job, right? He's, he's got it all ready, and God, unfortunately, for his sake, that moment, has answers for all of it. Uh, I, I just, I love that uh, interchange. And then uh, after all of that, we get a story of God deciding he wants to kill Moses, and we'll maybe get into that too. What in the world is happening there? Okay, so a lot here just in these first four chapters. Where do you want to go to? What questions do you have from these first few chapters? Hans? Uh, you had just said that the Egyptians were trying to purify their bloodline or something like that. I'm not actually sure. You know, get rid of the foreigners. They weren't trying to get rid of the foreigners. 
Just the male foreigners. They wanted their women. Sure, yeah, keep the women around. That would, that's, they're, they, and they're happy to have the ladies, yeah, but, the, uh, but they want the guys out of it. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think uh, um, they uh, have a special animus toward the men. They're happy to keep the women around. That's something, again, you see throughout the Old Testament. I don't know if that was that the Egyptian women were ugly or in the Hebrew women were... Can't comment on that, yeah. yeah. But, it's like, but it's like, for some reason, they, you know, it was added every time. It's like, the, the girls have to be right. safe. Keep the daughters. I like your ladies. Yep, yeah. Uh, a question, yeah, Esther. Yeah, when um, Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses because I drew him out of the water, mm. such an allusion to baptism. So uh, there's a lot here. Well, I mean, just as a Lutheran, anytime you get a story with water, you're like, well, baptism. <laughs> um, but a couple things that are, are neat about that. So for one thing, it's not a Hebrew who, who names it. It's, a, it's an Egyptian. The, the, felicitously, the um, language is similar enough. It sounds similar to the, the Hebrew word mashal, so to, to draw him out. But it's already foreshadowing this is what his mission is going to be, that he is going to draw the people of God out through the water, that he's going to lead them out through the water. And it does, I mean, in, in this case, there is uh, an apt connection because in 1 Corinthians 10, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 10, Paul does make this connection between the Israelites going through the waters, uh, not of Moses specifically being drawn out of the water, but the Israelites going through the waters and baptism. He does make that, that connection. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can, I think you can, you can see that there. Um, but just it's a, a, a powerful moment of that foreshadowing. Here's what he's going to do. His name is already pointing forward to his mission. And, you know, Moses was uh, saved from certain death. Yes. And we were yep. saved yep. Certain Through the waters from certain death. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah you really wonder... How many was this, was there a lot of kids that were being sent down the Nile this way? Was it just traffic of all these you know baskets just going down? Uh, I I don't think we can overstate just what a grievous um, injustice and just uh, abomination that's happening there. As it's just throw the chip. I mean, it's, it makes you sick to think about it. Um, <laughs> Okay, other, other questions, things you want to point out or ask about from these first few chapters. Yeah, Lily. Um, do you think it was, like, was God planning ahead by not giving Joseph children of his own? Why did he, does he not have children of his own? Just two. Yeah. Well, well they're, but they're, not, they're not his, like, biologically, are they? Yes. Ephraim and Manasseh, yeah, I think so. But why do you ask? Well, like, why... Why is no one in power, like... Oh, so why doesn't he have somebody why, in his why line? Why his sons taking his, his power over Egypt? Yeah, I guess I don't know how, if... Um, because he's essentially kind of like the second in command. I don't know if that power passed on uh, through a lineage the way that just the, the king would. It's a good question. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. But uh, in any case, so much time passes that it's... You get a few centuries pass, and like pretty much anything can go wrong in that. Do we know if any other of like Joseph's people were in power in that time? I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. It says that, that the king at that time, or the pharaoh at that time, everybody had forgotten Joseph. Right. They had forgotten about the murder. They had forgotten about him. They had forgotten about his leadership during the drought. Right. He's forgotten. It's forgotten. Yeah. Ancient history. Oh, 
Done. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Famine has passed, so why worry? We don't have worry. Yeah, Janet. Um, so God gives Moses the ability to do these miracles. Yeah. He sends him to Pharaoh, and he says, "You can do these for him, but then I'm going to harden his heart, so he can't. He can't even believe the miracles. Like why? Why? I, no. I, this. So this is like the big, big theological question that's kind of looming over, especially the next movement. Here, it's just. Uh, God just drops that in there. You know, you got to imagine Moses being like, what, so can we just back up real quick? So you're sending me to Pharaoh, and we already know he's not. Um, this is one of these instances, because as we'll see, as we get into the signs and wonders, into the plagues, in, through the first, I think through the first six, half dozen or so plagues, it'll say, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it suddenly kind of changes. It says, and then God uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart. And what this really gets into is this ancient mystery of kind of free will and God's sovereign work. Like, is he just doing it? Is, is Pharaoh just a pawn in the whole thing? Does he have any free will in, in the whole matter? And there's a lot to that where I would just say, I don't know. I mean, it seems to be this both end in this mysterious interplay of human free will and choice and God's divine providence that kind of both are both are at stake. Now, in terms of why here does it say that he's just going to end up hardening his heart, I think it's be, because God has in view what all is going to happen. And he's kind of giving the, the shorthand. Let me just give you the, uh, the quick summary of what's going to happen here, Moses. Um, this is ultimately how it's going to play out. But no, this is the, the big, to my mind, theological question with, um, with what's going to unfold over the next few chapters. Okay. Uh, Pastor Meyer, do you have any wisdom to be able to... It's interesting because uh, I know I agree with everything you've said. Uh, there are 10 instances of Pharaoh hardening his heart and 10 instances in this section of God hardening his heart. Seven times, it's, it's Pharaoh first. Yeah. He's hardening his heart. Right. And this is like that, you know, theologians talk about the antecedent will of God. God wants all men to be saved, right. but um, keep pushing, keep denying, keep... You know, rebelling, keep slapping me. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, and this is how, uh, I see you, Matt, just a sec. So th this is how Paul then describes sin, although he, he harkens back to the story of the Israelites, actually. But in Romans chapter 1, as he speaks of it as handing them over, handing them over. And it's kind of a chilling term, really, because it's this notion that God desires all people to be saved. He wants, I, I think that he wants Pharaoh right to believe, I mean, but it's in this, um, in his ultimate sovereign will that he is willing to hand people over. If that's, if you want to be stubborn, push back, give that to you, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a tough one, but we'll, we'll continue talking about it in the in coming weeks. Yeah, man. So, uh, in uh, Exodus 2, like, 15 through the end of 18, yeah. It's talking about how uh, Moses went to Midian and sat down by the well, and um, uh, some daughters of mm -hmm. someone Jeff. come along, and he saves them and waters their flock. Yeah. Like, what, what's it talking about? Because, like, I read it a few times. And yeah, what, what's happening here? I mean, it's a very just kind of... Um, homely scene in many ways where it's like they're going to, to water their animals. They're going to take, to take care of their livestock. 
And it would have been a big deal. I mean, how much water do you have to draw out of out of the, a well in order to feed all of your flocks? I, I, don't, I don't know. A lot, I, I assume. And so it's a big job. And he said, oh, I will help you. You know, Moses being a strapping guy, hey, I'm here to help, ladies. And he does. And so, I mean, it's in that respect, it's um, just a, a very... Um, a lovely picture of just Moses being helpful. And then it immediately leads to then uh, their father Jethro rule is like, oh, wait a second. We might have, we might have a, a good guy here. Uh, what do we got to do to, to um, play a little matchmaker, right? And it's interesting too, Matt, we've seen already uh, a couple of times that the well, the well was like the place, that was like the club, uh, you know, for the ancient world. If you wanted to go and meet, meet a lady, like you go to the well, that's... Uh, because we've seen that. Where else have we seen that already? We saw that with um, Rachel. Uh, with Rachel and uh, what? With, yeah, with Jacob and Rachel. But even before that, I think with uh, Isaac and Rebecca, perhaps as well. And then, of course, you go to the New Testament, and when Jesus uh, is going to the well, he meets the Samaritan woman as well. So, um, the the well is a place, place, good place to meet people. So, yeah. Good. Other questions. Things that you wanted to ask about. Yeah, Could you talk about uh, the part where, yeah, God tells Moses, okay, I want you to go back, and yeah. then immediately is angry yeah. with him until he circumcises his son. Okay, yes. Can explain I, that? This is one of the, I mean, in a book that has a lot of strange <laughs> happenings, this is one of the strangest. So go to the end of chapter 4. So we have, <laughs> we have all of this back and forth. We've got Moses' miraculous... Um, birth and rescue and all this stuff and then God calling to him and okay I, I want you to go and rescue my people um, so let me pick up with verse 21 of chapter 4 the Lord said to Moses when you go back to Egypt see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power but I'll harden his heart Jenna brought up so that he won't let these people go then you shall say to Pharaoh thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn son and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I'll kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought, him to, put him, and sought to put him to death. Like, wait, what? You know, you go back, did I miss something? Are there some verses that are missing here? Um, but then, verse 25, it's not done yet. Uh, Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it, and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you're like, wait, what's happening here? Well, one thing, and this doesn't necessarily help clarify things, but one thing it, it bears mentioning is that it's not clear in verse 24, is it that he's seeking to put Moses to death or Moses' son? Okay. okay, well, God's trying to put somebody to death here. Uh, what's going on with this. And I think there's a couple of things that are potentially at play. One is, we don't really know how much time is passing um, between uh, you know, this, this call and Moses getting to go. And perhaps in that time, maybe it's you know, Moses just dragging his feet and you know, resisting until finally he's going to, to go and God's like, no, you're not my guy. But I think what's more to the point and what is suggestive is that what do we learn about Moses' son here in the course of this story? Okay, well, I mean, just straightforwardly, what do they have to do to Moses' son? Circumcise. They have to circumcise him, which tells us that he was not circumcised. circumcised. Um, and why would that matter? 
part of the law for a certain time that day. Yeah, I mean, God God had commanded it. This was like the this core central sign of His promise of obedience to that that promise and trusting Him. And so, what might that suggest about Moses that he hasn't circumcised his own son? I mean, it would kind of be like if you learned that we had not baptized our kids or something like that, right? You'd say, wait a second. You might start to wonder, this guy really believe what he's talking about here? Is he just kind of going along? Yeah, Lord. He could be in denial of his ancestors, where he came from. He mm. was raised by Egyptians. Yeah. He could still be, you know, deciding, you know, do I belong to God or do I belong to, sure. you know, my parents that raised me. Yeah. Take him out of Egypt, but you haven't taken the Egypt out of him yeah. a little bit. Perhaps. <laughs> and it, yeah, David. Maybe it's also showing that um, you're afraid of Pharaoh. Mm. You shouldn't be fearing him. Right. Let's get it straight here. Everything's going to be fine after that. Yeah, let's, let's get straight. Where, get your fears in proper order. Yeah, I didn't notice until just now that the verse right before 23 if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Yeah. Maybe there's sort of a, a clue there where Moses has to understand what that would be like to lose that, mm. what's going on, and what's at stake. Yes. No, I think, that, I think there's definitely something about this story that's showing us what's at stake with this. Commentators will also make a connection here with the story of God wrestling with Jacob. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny, just like with, with Jacob, where he couldn't prevail over him, and so then he just touched his hip and he was done. Like, similarly, okay, so the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Like, God couldn't put him to death. He tried, and he's like, oh man, this guy's really tough. Um, <laughs> No. So similarly, there's something about this moment that it's a moment of testing. It's a moment of testing now in this wilderness time for, for Moses to see then, all right, where's your faith at? And I mean, the, the heart of that is with his own son. Like, are you going to circumcise your son? Are we on board here and going forward or not? Another side of it, just one more piece to this that I think is really significant, though, is then you have the shedding of blood. And uh, I mentioned the Hebrew before. Here's another place where it's, it's interesting. The, the same word is used um, for touched. Naga. Uh, the, uh, Zipporah, she touches it to Moses' feet. It's the same word that's going to be used a few chapters later to describe the touching of the blood on the doorposts. And so in a way, this is kind of foreshadowing the Passover in its own way. Yeah, Hans? Well, my Bible reads slightly different than that. Uh-huh. The, with the word feet... Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, let's see. Zipporah takes the flint and cuts off her, the foreskin of her son and touches it to uh, the genitals of Moses. Yeah. So, I mean, it says feet. Well, the word is literally feet, but... What translation you got there, by the way? <laughs> okay. So, I mean... The, I know. It's, Hans got the PG-13 one. Um, so there, there may be a euphemism at, at work. Yeah, there may be a euphemism at work here. And that's fair enough. Uh, which would make sense considering the nature of what's, what's being done. But it literally says touch to his feet. So leave that. You wanted to get here. That's why. Right. Um, but I, I do want to point out just how 
interesting it is that we're, we're just in the first few chapters. We've seen how God is using women. Uh, he's used the midwives. Now he's using Zipporah. Like the guys, uh, again and again, are kind of coming off as the dunces here. That God uses them in spite of themselves. It's the ladies who are stepping up and being the people of faith. I just imagine Zipporah in that moment. Give me that flint. I'll do it myself. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Incredible. Becky, give your hand up. Well, no, that's what I was going to ask about. Is that, is there like, this is some pretty uh, sensitive areas um, with both guys there. And then she, was she meddling or was she encouraging? Was, was. Like, enough already. This yeah. is God. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. Well, is that I, an okay? Yeah. No, I think step so. In there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think manifestly because she doesn't end up killing him. Let's go. Like, well, and she's not struck down by life. And she's not struck down by life. Yeah. It is a pretty big deal that it's not a priest doing it. Sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is this is how it's a, a lay person, if you will, and even you go further and say she was not an Israelite, right? She's um, the her uh, Jethro, her dad. I mean, he's a priest of Midian. We don't know exactly what that means, but suffice it to say, he's not an Israelite. He's not, he had not been a worshiper of the of the true God. He will become that way. We'll see, and he has some really good uh, advice for Moses later. But just this sending of God into the nations already, he he's desiring all people to come to. All right, we've got just a few minutes, and I want to um, just bring out uh, one last thing, which I, maybe two last things. Um, it, it's so neat. This is a pattern, again, established with Exodus, but throughout the scriptures, that it's God not only saves from, but he saves for. There's these two movements to it. He saves from, and he saves for. And what I mean by that is he saves from sin, but he saves for something there's both, um, it's been put, a means of salvation and a trajectory of salvation, if you will. Here's what God's doing, but here's why he's doing it. We see it with Exodus, where the Lord said, for instance, in Exodus 3, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, okay, saved from but also to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. So he's saving them from slavery, but he's also saving them for a new life. He doesn't just deliver them out of Egypt and say, all right, guys, you know, enough is enough. Figure out, I hope you have a good life. You know, I'm, I, I did my part. But he has something more in store for them. And this is a pattern that continues throughout the scriptures and certainly in the New Testament. When you start to look for it, you can see it all over the place. Of this means of salvation is ever and always through our Lord Jesus, through his death and resurrection and um, the gifts of that given to you and me. But then the trajectory of why, the in order that, and that's always a key to look for when you're reading the scriptures. Notice when the, that in order that. So I gave you just a few examples here. Many more could be listed. 2 Corinthians 5, I heard this on Ash Wednesday. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay? So you are righteous in Christ in order that now with a new life you are able to live into that righteousness of God. Or again, 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The means is Jesus. The trajectory is that newness of life. And on those Along those lines, Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, the means of salvation. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in newness of life. You are saved for a purpose. Could have brought in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 here as well. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God saves us not to just sit around, twiddle our thumbs, and say how nice it is to be saved and forgiven, but then for this new life and service to others, to be able to, to bring out and be a part of his kingdom coming in the world. Because finally, Ephesians 4, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens in order that he might fill all things. That ultimate renewal of all creation is what God is moving us toward the coming of our Lord Jesus and that new creation is what we are enabled and graced to be part of, even in this life. His mission to all the world. So, Exodus is already pointing forward in that way. Such a powerful story of God's work. I encourage you, if you haven't already been reading, or if you have, to continue reading along with us in the book of Exodus. You can pick up the um, Dwell Richly pamphlet, just to, but it's chapter day. Just reading a chapter day of Exodus, and we'll continue this story, this path to freedom next week. So thank you so much for being with us. God be with you.